Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Nami Hinoyen, welcome to Our Changing World from RNZ National. When you think of Antarctic wildlife, you're probably imagining penguins and seals. But with the exception of emperor penguins, this megafauna is at home in the ocean and moves away from the ice during winter. The continent is, however, teeming with miniature life forms. But with growing numbers of human visitors and a changing climate, these pin-sized animals and ground-hugging plants are threatened by introduced species. Veronica meets Pete Convey, a terrestrial ecologist at the British Antarctic Survey, whose focus is on tracking this alien invasion. Quite often when I give talks and I say I'm a terrestrial biologist in the Antarctic, people look at me blank and say there's no terrestrial biology, or they think that means penguins or seals, which are actually marine biology. The Antarctic as a whole has got terrestrial ecosystems, it's just that they're very limited in area, they're very small compared to what we're used to, and they're not the sort of charismatic groups that we're used to at home, so if you're a botanist, then the main plant group are mosses, um, also lichens, which are not technically plants, but we always think of them that way, because they're primary producers. Um, In the entire Antarctic, there's about 150 mosses, and it goes up to about 250, maybe up to 300 when you include the subantarctic islands. Um, There's about 400-odd lichens. And if you're a... I was originally an insect biologist, um, so on the animal side of it, the the single biggest land animal in the Antarctic is a small midge on the Antarctic Peninsula, and it weighs something like a milligram at most. So it's very small. And there are only two flies on the continent itself, so there are only two proper insects. And then you come down to things like springtails, mites, several tens of species of those, and then down to the microscopic invertebrates like nematodes, tardigrades, rotifers, and so on and so forth. So compared to what we're used to, Antarctica has got a very simple terrestrial biology. It actually represents everything we're normally used to. It's got producers, consumers, predators, decomposers, and so on and so forth. They're just not the sexy groups. They're little tiny groups. So most of them, in fact, invisible to the naked eye. Yeah, if you you know what you're The springtails might be visible. Yeah, no, the the, the springtails and mites are visible. Obviously, the mosses are visible and so on and so forth. By far, the biggest community is is proper microbial, which is microscopic life. So most of them you wouldn't see unless somebody got your little sample, put it on a plate, and you look at a microscope. And then people generally do go, wow, then. You get this very barren habitat and you extract the invertebrates out of it, they're all wriggling around under a microscope. People realise there's life there, yeah. In fact, these creatures and plants are the true Antarcticans because they stay through yeah, the yeah. winter. Yeah, 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 while yeah. it's, you know, the bigger and perhaps more charismatic megafauna, they are really, as you said, marine creatures, they can come and go, but yes, these I mean, little the, things stay. The big charismatic, the cute and fluffies, as I would call them, um, they basically migrate out of the continent. I mean, the obvious exception to that being the emperor penguin, which everybody gets very excited about. Um, but they, yeah, they, they're in the marine environment, which to us is very cold, but it is at least very stable and it's very productive. So you can, there's, there's a big diversity of life in the marine environment. You see why people get excited about that. The things on land, they, they, they're interesting in many, many different ways. Um, they, they are the year-round, so they face the effectively the worst extremes the planet's got to throw at them. You'd actually have to say they live in a freezer over winter. So basically, once they've gone into the into the freezer, once in a winter dark starts, freezer too. a very dark freezer. Yeah, but they're there. They're stay, Once they're in that frozen state, they're not active. They're 
to all intents and purposes, is not respiring. You can't detect biological activity. But it's like you switch the light out. They, they just switch off for the winter, they survive the conditions, then you switch on the next summer, and so they, they effectively come back to life again. Well, not even for the entire summer. I mean, some of these live just a few hours in a year, and the rest of it they spend as close to being dead as you can that go is, without actually being actually, dead. <laughs> that is actually a very fair description. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're active for the short periods when the temperature regime is right, and in particular the water regime is right. I mean, the liquid water is the big limiting factor to most life on Antarctica. It's a very, very dry climate. If you go there, then you actually build up static on your surface very quickly. It's very, very low humidity. Any surface water dries out very quickly. So the little organisms that are living there, the nematodes, for instance, which do dry out very easily, they might be active for three or four days in a year if you, top, you sort of glue all the little bits of activity time together. So on the face of it, it's a, a nematode is in a petri dish, very quick-growing organism, very rapid life cycle. A few days, maybe even a few hours, no, a few hours at the extreme, but a few days life cycle. In the Antarctic, the nematode species could easily have a four, five, six, seven, eight year life cycle because it's got so little time active. I wanted to talk to you about invasions and new creatures um, getting a foothold, but maybe I'd actually like to find out first more about those that are already well adapted, well established, mm -hmm. well adapted. And when you say that something that can turn around a, a life cycle in, in a few days and better conditions takes years down there, does that mean that it obviously evolution must be slow down there? They are actually well adapted, but they can't easily change. There's some truth in that. And uh, there is there's an area of work called life history strategies. And this is so it sets out to generalize and describe how things carry out their life cycle, their entire life history. Now, we normally think about things very simplistically. Um, if most people have done ecology at school will have heard of R and K selection. Um, essentially, you have organisms that either are opportunists, like weeds in your garden. They grow very rapidly, they reproduce very rapidly, they produce lots of seeds or spores or whatever that spread around. Um, or the K, the K strategy ones are adapted to be good competitors, and the classic there is a tropical rainforest, lots and lots and lots of diversity. We think very narrow niches, and they're sp very specialised to be very successful in the niche that they're in. It's now 20, 30 years ago. We have, we've known about this for a while. There is a third strategy in that, which is called adversity. And there are habitats on the planet, so the poles are the obvious reason, but also high mountains, desert areas, hot, hot desert areas, that sort of thing, where the main selective force is this survival of stress or this survival of adversity. And if we sort of, if you sort of bring it down to your own bank account, you have a certain amount of resources that you can choose to spend or have to spend in a certain way to survive, to keep your house going, to keep you going, whatever else. In an adversity-selected organism, an awful lot of an organism's resources simply go into survival. The extreme example of that on this planet are microbes that live in the, um, the surface layers of rocks, so-called endolithic micro microbes. Now, Antarctica is quite well known, particularly Dry Valley region is quite well known for these. They live in sandstone rocks, so there's a little bit of clearness. I mean, the, the crystals have got let light through, and a few millimetres into the rock you get this layer of microbes. From their point of view, it's a reasonably good habitat because it conserves water a little bit longer than the surface would. It's a little warmer than perhaps uh, elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, the rock surface warms up. So, and so yeah, it's warmer. They're protected from some of the UV stresses, that sort of thing, because that's absorbed by the crystal on the way through. These things, at the extreme, a single cell might divide into two once a year. Now, you think what happens on a Petri dish when you culture a microbe? Every 20 minutes or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> 
So it is the absolute extreme. If you think of it in another way, I mean, the, the, the photosynthetic ones, the algae in this system, they take up carbon um, to fix into sugars, standard photosynthesis. The time it takes to get from taking up a carbon atom, fixing it in a sugar, to that carbon atom being released, being respired, which is the, the normal living process, um, it can be up to several tens of thousands of years. I mean, your estimate will vary depending on a particular system. And the only example I put, it's the only example I know of of a biological system that nearly works on a geological timescale. You've sort of got biology and geology coming together. Compare it to us, it, okay, it's a few years, I mean, there's lots of biomass in our body, we don't respire at all just like that, but you're looking at months to years recycling time for us. For one of these little um, algae in an endolithic system, you're looking at tens of thousands of years. So they work very, very slowly. And it's estimated something like 95% of their energy, their budget, their bank account, goes into surviving. It leaves them very, very little to go and do anything else with. So reproduction is a luxury, really? Yeah, basically. And, okay, that's the extreme example, but things like the mites and the springtails, the mosses and the rest of it that we started, started out talking about, they equally spend a lot of their time simply surviving. And there's a whole sort of, then there's a series of characteristics go with life, life cycles or life histories of organisms in this sort of environment. It means they don't reproduce very much. It means they have very high investment in like chemicals called antifreezes, things that stop their cell contents freezing or things that protect them against ice crystals, so on and so forth. So in a warming world and in a world where humans are more frequent visitors, are these things... Okay. Is that a threat in its um, own right, before we even talk about invasions by other creatures? Yes, I mean, it is a threat in its own right, because these organisms aren't... They haven't evolved to cope in an environment where there's competition. Their job is surviving. It's not sort of competing with other organisms to survive. Okay, yes, there are predators, so there is... You don't take, comp you don't take competition out of the equation altogether. It's the balance between different factors. So, in a warming Antarctic, these things could benefit... Simply because you have more temperature, you have more energy, you may have more water. In that you may have more time to do the other things. And, 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 yeah, you'll have slightly longer seasons. The spring will start, start slightly earlier it'll finish, and the autumn will finish slightly later. You've got a longer season to grow in. So if you simply look at the Antarctic communities in isolation, if, particularly if they have enough water, then they will benefit from global warming. It's global warming, regional warming is technically the truth. And what that actually means in practice is you'll get expansion of the communities that you've got there already. Now, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive, or at least all our warnings about warming are usually negative in the sense that things struggle with it. In these Antarctic ter terrestrial communities, there's a reasonable chance most of the communities would benefit on their own. But that is on their own. If we do other things that affect the environment, and I say particularly bringing in other organisms that don't naturally occur in the Antarctic, then you bring in the possibility of competition. And then the Antarctic indigenous organisms are actually likely to fare very badly because they simply don't have the ability to deal with competitors. And those other alien organisms are already coming in. Are they coming in through the changes in the environment, through the warming, or through um, with people? Are they still I, I, well, again, it's, the, it's one of these things where the answer ought to be both. Um, the environment's changing. I mean, the most obvious part, the most obvious thing about the environment that's changing is warming, and that is uneven across Antarctic, so parts of the Antarctic are warming very rapidly, the Antarctic Peninsula is the main area we think about for that. Also parts of the sub-Antarctic, some of the sub-Antarctic islands are warming, and some of them are actually slightly complicated, some of them are warming and getting drier, essentially they're getting more sunny weather, so less wet weather, and that means their habitats are drying. Um, in that circumstance, colonisation is a natural process. Things move around the world. We, I mean, irrespective of humans, things move around the world. But 
If you look at the frequency that we carry things around with us, we're very well known for carrying things around the world, deliberately and accidentally, um, the frequency of things coming with us is probably two or more orders of magnitude greater than the frequency of natural colonization event. Basically, over the history of us having contact with the Antarctic, and I'm including subantarctic and Antarctic proper in that, we think two, three, four things have colonized naturally. They've got there by the normal natural colonization processes. Basically, like all of Antarctica, including the islands, is very, very isolated. And it's actually quite a low probability to get there and survive. In that same sort of time scale, 200 years-ish, we know of at least 200 things that have come in with humans, with us. Um, some have come in deliberately. Um, big mammals, particularly, is the obvious one on that. Um, some have come in basically accidentally or as add-ons that we didn't notice, and this is sort of invertebrates and plants. And all of this doesn't say anything at all about what microbes we might have moved around the world. So the, basically, the, the human influence is two orders of magnitude or more greater um, than the natural colonization rate. So we're a really big player in this process. But everybody visiting Antarctica go through that protocol of removing seeds, cleaning their gears, scrubbing their boots, all those sort of means of trying to at least limit what we bring in, but still, despite all of that? Well, for a start, it's not every, everybody doesn't actually go through that. I mean, yes, it's common sense, and I'm speaking to people in New Zealand, obviously there is very high awareness of biosecurity when you come into New Zealand. So we're all checked, our boots are cleaned, probably the only time of the year they are cleaned. That level of biosecurity doesn't apply to most of Antarctica. Most visitors to the Antarctic don't, go, don't come in through New Zealand. And to be fair, if you, if you go from New Zealand to the Antarctic, the major gateway in, you're not checked again. You simply get on a plane in Christchurch and you get off in McMurdo. Um, now, it, there's a lot of awareness in the community. The, the, the publicity side of it is part of, the, is part of what needs to be done here. So people travelling from here to the Antarctic are aware of the problem, there are posters about it, there's education about it. It still relies on individuals to do their job properly. So if you put a hoover, and we did this a few years ago, there was a project looking at what we carry in accidentally. And people coming into McMurdo actually still carry a fair number of seeds and various other possible what's called propagules, think little parts of living organisms that could actually go on and establish. To be fair, that's actually not the problem for the Antarctic because the, the environment in the Ross Sea is so extreme compared to the environment in temperate New Zealand. Very little could actually survive the transfer or establish there. The bigger problem is actually when you do go to the subantarctic islands or the side of the Antarctic I work normally, the Antarctic Peninsula side, you've got a much shorter link there, southern South America down to the South Shetland Islands, tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. Yes, it is more extreme in the Antarctic. It's nowhere near as extreme there as it is in the Ross Sea. So we're really looking at that region as the highest risk area for invasions. So what are we already seeing? Um, basically, I, I said there were roughly 200 things that, species that we know are established already. About this half is subantarctic. This, well, this, this is actually subantarctic and Antarctic. Since that, there was a very big review study in 2005 that documented everything we knew till then, and there hasn't been another one since then. We know more things have come in since then. But at a ballpark, if you said there was about 250 now, roughly half of those are flowering plants, roughly a third are insects, and the remainder are small other invertebrate groups, the old crustaceans, worms, slugs, that sort of thing. Of that roughly 250 now, probably about 225, 230, so around about 90% are the subantarctic islands. 
the remaining 5 to 10% are in what's called the Maritime Antarctic, which is the Antarctic Peninsula, and the big archipelagos off the Antarctic Peninsula. So the biggest problem at the moment is the Subantarctic, but the Subantarctic is like a step on the way in conditions terms into the Maritime Antarctic Peninsula, and that's a step on the way into the continent. So what's going on in the Subantarctic is a warning for what will happen in, and is starting to happen in the Maritime Antarctic, and in due course that's a warning for what would happen or could happen around the continent itself. Which is where climate change does come in in the sense that something that might have come in you know, even just 50 years earlier, 50 years ago, might not have had a chance to establish, but now it does, because it's yes. warmer. I mean, yeah, yeah. They, 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 there is a, there's what's called a synergy, there's an interaction between climate change and the human factor of bringing something in. Now, again, if you step back from this, if you took, at random, take 100 insects from South Island, New Zealand, a proportion of those could survive on the Subantarctic Islands. I mean, in a way, that sounds obvious here because you've got the Auckland Islands and the rest quite close to South Island. It's less obvious when you go to the South Atlantic and you've got South Georgia compared to South America. But I would pull figures from the air. If you took 100 random fellfield mountainside insects, probably 10 of those, if you actually moved them to South Georgia, would survive. Probably one of those, if you moved it down to towards the Antarctic Peninsula, would survive. The reason they're not there at the moment is this isolation factor. They physically don't get the chance to get there. But if we transfer them, it's always it's a common thing in invasion studies. Quite a big proportion could survive if they were moved, but they don't get the chance. And then of those that survive, a, a proportion will become what's called properly invasive. They'll spread around rather than just sitting in one place. So two questions. Does it matter? And if so, what? Can we do it? <laughs> the first of those, does it matter? In a way, it's a philosophical question. Does it matter that we make big changes to environments, to ecosystems, to habitats? Now, if you have a starting point that we do have both an interest and, if you like, almost like some sort of moral duty to care for the environment around us, then yes, it does matter because these animals, plants, whatever microbes that come in they potentially can be game changers for an ecosystem. Now, an example I quite often use of that is that on two subantarctic islands at present, we have ground beetles invading, carabid beetles, which are the sort of scuttly beetles that you see when you turn, when you go into your vegetation in your back garden. They are incredibly effective predators. Um, they're one of the best insect predators out there. So any other sort of similar sized or smaller insect they run into, they kill. These ecosystems don't have that guild in. And as a scientist, that's interesting in itself. You're looking at think, rules that put ecosystems together. We have in the Antarctic, we've got ecosystems that miss, miss entire feeding gills or trophic levels or whatever else. So where these beetles get in, and South Georgia and the Kerguelen archipelago in this particular case, in the immediate vicinity of those beetles, you lose most of the native fauna. Now, in a conservation context, a lot of that native fauna is endemic. I haven't, we haven't gone into that question. But much of the Antarctic fauna, and that includes the subantarctic fauna, is endemic to the islands or the region that they happen to be in. So if you bring something new in that's got an entirely new trophic function, you are actually endangering the future of a completely unique ecosystem in the, region, in the Antarctic region you're bringing it into. So that, that is a big conservation threat, or of conventional biodiversity terms, it's, it's a threat to biodiversity. As to what we can do about it, it's a difficult one, though. There are many simple, common-sense things that we can do to reduce the risk. The only, th the only way you can get rid of the risk altogether is you don't go. Just take humans out of the equation. 
Well, some people would say that would be a nice thing to do with the Antarctic. In purely realistic terms, that's not going to happen. People are going to go, whether they go like me as researchers or they go to see as a tourist or whatever else. People are going to go. So what do you do? Well, it's actually not... It isn't rocket science. It is this thing about cleaning your boots, checking your pockets, checking your rucksacks, all that sort of thing. Common sense would say we should do that. It's part of public education. It's part of um, governmental education for um, professionals like me that go... If it's high enough in people's awareness, then it will be done, and it reduces the chance. Now, from an operator point of view, we take, across different operators, thousands of tonnes of cargo into the Antarctic because we have to keep the, build these research stations, keep research stations going, all the rest of it. Again, if you walk around a container on the dockside, it doesn't matter where that container's going, it will have spiders on the outside, it'll have entrained soil, it will have seeds stuck on it and all the rest of it. And you say, well, thousands of cargo, what can we do about that? One of the most obvious things you can do about that is have your container preparation in a, roughly speaking, clean area. Now, that means don't leave it in an open sort of field-type environment. Um, it means keep it in preferably a warehouse-type storage area. You don't have the external weeds. You have much lower proportion of invertebrates, insects and spiders and so on crawling around in there. doesn't get rid of the risk altogether. It reduces it drastically. And that was Pete Conway, a polar ecologist at the British Antarctic Survey. Have a look at our webpage for some stunning images. rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World.